We will be in Second Kings chapter 5. Let's pray. And now, Lord God, as we open up uh, your word, please help us to see the things that you want us to see. Help us to understand those things. And Lord, more than that, help us to, to see the reality that you want to have happen in our lives as a result of your word. And so I just want to thank you this morning for, for your word and thank you that you've given us the spirit to help us understand it. And Lord, now we ask for your guidance as we study, but also then your guidance as we seek to apply in each of our lives. We ask this in your name. Amen. Please be seated. One of the things that uh, I enjoy is, is reading, and um, I, read a, I read a lot of stuff just for fun, you know, just because I, I want to think about you know, dragons blasting things out of the air, who knows, all kinds of fun things like that. But one of the things that I've learned as I've gone through and read different things, including some of the classics, is that that first sentence or maybe the first paragraph can tell you so much if it's done right. Uh, and if it's done right, then, then all of a sudden you know a whole bunch of things about that, what's going on. For, let me give you an example. He was an old man who fished alone in a skiff on the Gulf Stream, and he had gone 84 days without taking a fish. Okay, one of my favorite books, actually. That's The Old Man in the Sea by Hemingway. But you, all that stuff is there in just one little sense. This one you'll, I'm sure you'll know as well. Um, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Sounds like our time frame today, doesn't it? It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of, it, of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. And that's from A Tale of Two Cities. And as I was looking at that lesson, I thought, man, how many of us have felt like that lately? <laughs> you know, that's kind of just all this weird stuff going on. But I, I was looking at those in light of the fact that I think in verse 1, we have one of those amazing verses that gives us a ton of information about a person. Okay? So let's look at verse 1 together. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, your translation may say Aram, but that's same thing, was a great man with, with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Okay? Um, so let's just go ahead and there's... Um, Put, put a map up there real quick so we can just take a see Up there is Damascus and down below is Samaria. So we're going to be kind of a coming together of that all thing coming together. But um, here's, here's what we learn about Naaman just from verse 1. Okay? And you go to the next one, Sarah, now. Thank you. He's the commander of the army. So he's, he's the chief over everybody that uh, Syria has. Everybody answers to him except the king. He was a great man, highly regarded by the king of Syria. So you're looking at somebody that is well-known, highly respected, someone who is, you know, amazing in a whole lot of ways in his field of service, which is, you know, the leader of the army. Um, the next one, through him, God gave victory to Syria over the Assyrians. Now, that didn't stay that way forever, but at least in the time frame when he was alive, when they were fighting, it was through um, Naaman that God actually brought victory for, for the Assyrians. He was a man of valor. He was a brave man. 
And then there's this big three-letter word, but he was a leper. He had leprosy. Um, now, the word that is translated leprosy can mean a number of different things, and never, all of them skin kind of diseases and conditions, and, and, and many of the translations that just go with leprosy because that's more, better well-known. Um, <clears throat> but the reality here is this. He has this disease, whatever it is, and it's starting to impact him, and it's going to take his life. There's a seriousness about this that is brought out. That's why people are concerned about it. That's why he's willing to make a pilgrimage to Israel. All those things are coming because this was serious. It wasn't just like he had, you know, some dry, flaky skin. This was going to take his life. Okay, so think of all the things we learned. Then he's commanded the army. He was highly regarded by the king. Uh, God used him to bring victory to Syria. He's a man of valor. But he has leprosy. Verse 2. At this time, Aramean raiders had invaded Israel. And of course, they take captives from everywhere they went. And verse 3 tells us that they took this young girl and they gave her to um, Naaman's wife as a slave. Now, they didn't use that word, but that's what it was. She wasn't going home anytime soon. She wasn't going home at all. She was going to be serving there the rest of her life. Um now just stop and think of this young lady. Um, look at what she says in verse 3. One day the girl said to her mistress, I wish my master would go to see the prophet in Samaria. He would heal him of his leprosy. Now, here's a young lady, old enough to know who Elisha was, old enough to know that he was a prophet from God, old enough to know that he could do something about this. And, and in her thinking... This is a piece of cake. Send him there because he can take care of this. That's really what she's saying here. He can heal him. Now, just real quickly, things we know about this, this young lady, this young Jewish slave girl. She's unnamed. We never know who she is. She's aware of what Naaman is going through and how hard that is. She's concerned about his welfare. And she is confident, confident that if he went to Elisha, he could be healed. That's... This young lady. Think of all that comes in with that from someone who was taken captive in and probably the rest of her family were slaughtered. And she's the one that was left. And she got brought back to be a slave in uh, Naaman's household. So verse 4, then Naaman told, told the king what the girl from Israel had said. Go and visit the prophet, the king of Aram told him. I will send a letter of introduction for you to take the, to the king of Israel and so then he started collecting the things he was going to take. 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. Now in that time frame, a set of clothing would include more than just, you know, a coat. It's a whole, it's everything. Undergarments, a garment, maybe something to wrap around. And, and a whole set of clothes would be something that would be very, very valuable. Matter of fact, when Joseph was giving his brothers stuff, remember, he gave them changes of clothes, sets of clothing, when they came to see him in, in Egypt. And so, this is what's going to be in, in, they're taking along to, to help get what they want. Now, this is probably my favorite verse in this section. The letter to the king of Israel said, With this letter, I present my servant Naaman. I want you to heal him of his leprosy. <laughs> of course, the king reacted appropriately. He tore his clothes, and uh, he was in utter dismay. And he says, How am I going to do that? I can't do that. Now, isn't it interesting? That's where his thinking stopped. 
His thinking didn't go further down the road to somebody that he knew. He knew who Elisha was. To Elisha, who had done many miracles already by this point, none of that came into his mind. He's just sitting there saying, I can't do this. They're trying to pick on me. They're trying to pick a fight. That's what he's doing. I can't heal him, so then they're going to attack us because we didn't heal him. And that's the thinking that he has. Now, it's interesting. Who believes that Naaman could really be healed? A Jewish slave girl, a Syrian king, who didn't believe. Well, Naaman and the king of Israel. Isn't that fascinating? We start thinking through all the things that are being said here. Um, you know, the king was totally out of touch and, and um, didn't even think of calling on Elisha. But look at verse 8. But when the Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes in dismay, he sent this message to him. Um, why are you so upset? Or why did you tear your clothes? That's really what's being coming through there. Um, when someone tore their clothing, normally it was a sign of extreme anguish. It was something that you were communicating. You were communicating that you were facing something horrible. Many times the death of a family member would cause people to, to, to tear their garments. And so the fact that the king gets this letter and suddenly tears his clothes... Uh, there's this anguish, and, and, and he doesn't know what he's supposed to do. Um, and it's interesting. I, I, the NIV puts it this way. We're going to go into this implication here. Why have you torn your robes? Well, you know, I mean, big trouble here. You know? And so he goes on to say, Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. Okay? The king of Israel knew that. But the king of Israel didn't think about the fact that maybe God could do something here because the king of Israel was still worshiping Baal. I love that. What's wrong with you, king? Why, Why are you tearing your clothes? And again, remember, it's a sign of grief. It's a sign of hopelessness. It's a sign of despair. Uh, there's no hope. He's assuming that this is a sent as, as kind of a, one of those things that's going to cause them to have to go to war with Aram. Or, and, and so he doesn't want to have any part of this. And it's interesting because on one level, what Elisha is saying is, you know the things that God has done through Elijah and what God is doing now through me. Why do you continue to think that God is powerless? I get why you would think Baal is powerless. He's done nothing. But God has done all kinds of things. And so Elisha said, send him to me. So Naaman uh, is being sent to him. And I love the fact that he says he will see that there is a prophet in Israel. Because if there's a prophet in Israel, then God is at work in Israel as well. Because he's working through his prophets at this time in in that country. So for me, this was just one of those wonderful verses. I, I was reading it yesterday afternoon. I came across it with that thought. I wonder, how many times do not necessarily literally tear my clothes? But how many times do I just throw up my hands in despair and wonder where in the world is God in all this and what's going on and how are you going to pull this off? 
So that's really a great reminder to me that no matter how hopeless things seem, no matter how alone I may feel, no matter how difficult and never-ending the problems may be, I'm not supposed to give up. I'm not supposed to give in to hopelessness and helplessness. God is at work. God is at work and we can trust Him. One of my uh, favorite hymns, uh, favorite Christmas hymn, if you will, is based on the poem of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And uh, let me just recommend that you go and look that up and look up the backstory for that if you never have. Um, this is a man who wrote this amazing piece, and I'm only going to quote a little bit of it, but um, his wife had been burned to death, and, and then he had been burned severely, and then he had a son that had to go into the Civil War and was wounded several times. And he wakes up Christmas morning, all the bells in all the churches are singing, Hey, you know, peace on earth, goodwill to men, you know, this is great, Christmas is here. And this is what he says in response to the peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth. Goodwill to men, but the bells kept ringing. They just kept ringing and talking about Christmas and and how wonderful you know Christmas is and all of that. That's what the bells are doing them in on Christmas morning. And finally, he came to this point. Then rang the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the light, the right prevail, with peace on earth. Goodwill to men. Those are just amazing, amazing words. No matter what we feel or think, there are times you may feel like God just isn't listening. He's just, where is He? I don't have any idea. I know He's here. I know He indwells me, but I just don't have no sense of, I don't have any sense of His presence. God is not dead, nor does He sleep. No matter what we're going through, no matter how hard it is, we need to remember those words. He's not dead. He's not asleep. Wrong will fail, and right will prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. So Naaman uh, went with his horses and his chariots um, to Elisha's house now because, uh, you know, the king sent him that direction. Elisha sends a messenger out to him with this statement. Now, understand, this is this is a, a high person in the well. He's the highest in the military. Comes tooling up to Elijah's, Elisha's house in a number of chariots, probably a bunch of other cavalry as well, and of course a bunch of pack horses to carry all that gold and silver and everything else. So they come tooling up to, to Elisha's place, and um, Elisha didn't even open the door. He sends out a servant and says, Hey, go wash in the, in the Jordan River. Dip yourself seven times and you'll be good. And, uh, and he didn't like that very much. You know, I mean, he, he came with all of the pomp and circumstance and he had gifts and all this stuff and, and Elisha didn't even bother to come out. He said, go, go to the Jordan and wash. And he became angry and, um, you know, stalked away, what it says in, in New Living. He said, I thought he would certainly come out and meet me, and I expected him to wave his hand over the leprosy and call on the name of the Lord, his God, and heal me. And then he goes on to say, hey, we've got better rivers than the Jordan back home. I could just go there and wash seven times if that's what I have to do. 
And so he's, he's upset. He's ready to get back in the chair and just get out of there. But he's got a couple of officers who are thinking very clearly. Verse 13. They tried to reason with him and said, Sir, if the prophet had told you to do something very difficult, would you have done it? And the answer that's expected is, well, absolutely, no problem. So you should certainly obey him when he says simply, go wash and be cured. On one level, what they're saying is, listen, let's go down to the Jordan. you got nothing to lose here. You've got this disease and you're going to die of it. This man says that this will cure you. Why don't you try it at least? So they go down there and... <clears throat> You know what, I, I, <laughs> I can't imagine. He didn't want to get in that water, and he didn't want to do it. But he's, he's in there. I wonder if after every time he came out of the water, if he didn't say, yep, still there. <laughs> every single I know, well, come on now, you know. But the seventh time down, and, you know, he was healed. But here's an implication on this. <clears throat> what was his primary problem in this, in this setting, in this scenario, is that he wanted things done his way. I mean, he's the top guy in the Syrian army. And he's proud on one level and arrogant as well. And in his mind, as we read this verse just a minute ago, this is what he had thought would happen. That uh, he would be honorably received. Okay, he'd be welcomed and Elisha would come out and make a lot of, make a whole lot of stuff about him and, 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 you know, call him high and exalted names. And, and then he, he had an idea of what the prophet would do. Um, he would take his hand and, and, and just kind of make motions over whatever the skin thing was and, and, and pray to the name of his God. And then he would be healed. And then he would pay for it. See, that was the plan. You do all this for me, and I promise you, yeah, man, there's a lot of gold over there, and there's a lot of silver and a whole bunch of other things. And Elisha took all, <laughs> took all that and blew it right out of the water. I'm not going to say hi to you. I'm going to tell you where to go, and that's it. I don't want to have anything more to do with you. Um, and so, you know, Naaman finally goes down, and he does what he's supposed to do. And one of the things that I think Elisha was trying to get across to him is this. God's not doing this because you paid for it. God is doing this because it is His grace <clears throat> at work. And so, I think that's one of the biggest things that came up. God offered to heal him in God's way, no other way. Um, salvation is the same today. God offers salvation freely to anyone who will believe. And we can't buy it, can't earn it, can't work for it, or do anything uh, for ourselves. It's always good to remember what Peter said. First Peter 5.5 5. Again, putting in context of... What was happening with Naaman? <clears throat> God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And Naaman appeared to be a pretty decent person to everybody, except when he got furious that things didn't go the way he wanted them to. Um, being healed of leprosy was not the most important thing Naaman needed, though. Stop and think about that. Yeah, he was going to die sooner if that wasn't taken care of, but Naaman needed to see the only God, only God could heal him, and he needed to accept that it would happen in God's way. Only God could save him. Only God could cleanse his heart. 
Anyone who thinks they don't need to submit to God, anyone who thinks they are good enough, the gospel is very clear. We need a Savior, Christ the Lord. Acts 4.12, Peter was preaching and he said, There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And so we come humbly in recognition that we need a Savior. We need um, we need God to change our hearts. When we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that happens instantaneously. We are pure in God's eyes from that moment on. But then it takes the rest of our lives walking and learning and growing to become more and more and more like Jesus. Let's move on to verse 14. <clears throat> so Naaman go down to the river and dipped himself. And he did it just the way Elisha said. And guess what? The whole thing was worth the trip. And let's put that map up there just to kind of show you. That arrow down there is the Jordan River. So if, if this took place in um, Samaria or somewhere near there where Elisha was living, that's about a 20, 25-mile round trip. And so, you know, that all the way down there to the river, he has to do all the dipping, all that kind of stuff. And um, <clears throat> he's totally healed. Now, why in the world seven times? Why did he have to dip seven times? Did God need seven dips to make it work? And the answer to that is no. And the answer to the why is we don't have a clue. <laughs> it's just what, what Elisha said. Go down there and dip seven times. And he did, and, and he was healed. It was an act of obedience to God, I think, showing that his arrogant, proud heart was understanding there was someone bigger than him. That he's not in charge and in control of this situation that there is a real God that he has to answer to. Um, Acts 55, 7 says, Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. I'm sorry, Isaiah. Let him turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him, and to our God, for he will freely pardon. And Naaman turned to God. It took a little bit of convincing from the others, but he turned to God, and God had mercy on Naaman. He healed him physically. And as we move through this passage, I think you'll see that there's also a spiritual work that God did in his heart as well. Verse 15 says, Naaman and the entire party went back to find the man of God, and they stood before him, and Naaman said, this is important. This guy just had an encounter with God in this short time period. Now I know that there is no God in all the world except Israel. What's he saying? Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the only true God. Nobody else matters. And Elisha replied, surely, and then he wants to give a gift um, to Elisha. And Elisha says, nope, not taking any gifts. And again, I think the reason for this wasn't that he couldn't have used the gold or the silver in some ways. I think the reason for this was to say to him, you did not buy this miracle. You did not pay for this. I didn't do this to get money. God had mercy on you. That's why you got healed. God was merciful. So Naaman didn't go back to Damascus. He went to see uh, see Elisha. And I, you know, one of the things that strikes me, there's a couple of things here in the language, in the verses that, that say something. And, um, 
And, it, and it's really important. First one we just saw, he says, okay, there is no other God. Uh, I am the Lord and there is no other apart from me. There is no God. You know, he didn't have that portion of Scripture. He didn't have any portion of Scripture. And yet in following these directions, something in his heart changed. And he's able to come back to Elisha and say, I know there's one God, only one, and he's here in Israel. So then he says in verse 17, there's an interesting thing that happens here. All right, but please allow me to load two of my mules with earth from this place, and I will take it back home with me. And and stop and think of what he's going to do here. Look at what it says. From now on... I will never again offer burnt offerings or sacrifices to any other God except the Lord. So two critical things that have happened in this man's um, faith in God. One is there's only one God, and I will not offer sacrifices to anything else, just the true God. Um, so now he's got these new values, he's got these new... And, and, and it seems that what he wants that dirt for, he probably has that idea that, that many people of the time frame did, that gods were local, and that you know there was the god of the mountains, and the god of the river, and the Baal was the god of the, you know, the storms. The reality is that he may have been thinking, okay, um, he's, this is the god of Israel, I need to take a little bit of Israel home with me, and then I'm going to set up my altar there on that dirt. And so he took a couple of mules full of dirt back with him and it apparently laid it out in some way so that he could build an altar and on that spot only was he going to offer sacrifices to the God of Israel, the one true God. Now, we're sitting here thinking, man, that's really weird, but stop and think of how long he's been a believer. Eh, just a few hours probably, (laughs) maybe a day. And so he doesn't have a whole lot of understanding and training, but he's got the two big ones. There's only one God, and I will not offer sacrifices or worship any other God. And when I offer sacrifices, I'm going to do it in such a way that I'm reminding myself it's the God of Israel who I'm sacrificing to. And that's why he went through that process of doing that. And then he brings up something else. Um, Verse 18. May the Lord pardon me in this one thing. When my master the king goes into the temple of the god Rimon to worship there and leans on my arm, may the Lord pardon me when I bow down too. And what he's saying is, listen, sometimes I'm called upon by my king to assist him as he goes into his own temple. Is that going to be okay? I don't want to do something I'm not supposed to. But will it be okay? I'm not worshiping that god. I'm just helping my master as he needs to do this. <clears throat> and, and again, think of what he's saying here. He's already thinking down the road very, very quickly. He's put this stuff together. You know, there's one God and there's no other gods. I'm not going to sacrifice anyone else. And so what am I going to do about this temple we've got in Damascus? Uh, and Elisha's answer was simply, go in peace. Go in peace. I think if it had been something that was evil and so terribly awful, he would have said, oh, well, let's talk about this because you need to need to change your thinking on this. But that isn't what happened. Uh, and we have no idea whether he ever had to do that again or not. But the reality is that Naaman knew in his heart he should not bow down to any other god. He already knew that. And, and I love the fact that he took these things in, he believed in God, and God responded by healing him physically and healing him spiritually. There's a conversion that took place in all of this, and you see it in the language that he uses afterwards. Remember, he's not Jewish. 
He's never sat under any training of any rabbi anywhere. And yet he comes up with two or three things that are critical when it comes to living and obeying God. There's some implications in this section I want to just quickly go through before we move on. How many people were involved in bringing Naaman to the point of conversion? I think you got the slave girl, first of all. Um, you know, I mean, what did she say? Hey, there's a prophet in Samaria that can heal you. Wow, what an amazing thing to say and to promise, if you will. And then Elisha's messenger who came out and said, Yeah, you need to go down the river and you know, dip it seven times and you'll be fine. And then Naaman's two officers who wouldn't let him go home until he at least tried it. And so these three, these three sets of people are the ones that, that God used in very unique and special ways. They didn't stand up and preach huge sermons. They didn't do anything other than just kind of say, listen, this is, this is what we need to do. We need to obey God. And it really struck me because so many times I think, we don't think we can be of help, or we just think we don't have anything to offer. And, and I, I think what I really want to start, looking at this passage, just thinking, God can use anybody. He, he doesn't need us, but if we're surrendered to Him, He can use us. And that's an incredible thing. A slave girl, a messenger, a couple of officers in the army were God's instruments to bring Naaman to a relationship with himself. And so what does that look like for us today? You know, I've been one of those guys that I've been in, you know, my parents were missionaries and I've seen outdoor meetings, I've been involved in outdoor meetings and door-to-door work and all kinds of stuff, and yet I, I now look back on all that and say, yeah, that was effective in some ways, but I think that sometimes God is looking for us to just interact in our normal, ordinary lives in such a way that we're given opportunities to share. Um, it's amazing, I, you know, I've had so many doctor visits in the last little bit with all kinds of stuff going on. And every time they say, well, what do you do? I say, well, I'm a pastor of a church. And there's one of two reactions. One is to quickly run from that topic and never talk about it again. And that's fine if that's how they feel. And others start asking questions. You know, I had one of them ask about what I was going to preach on Sunday, and then the next week I saw him, and they said, how'd it go? They want to know how it went. You know, it was my first sermon back after all that time of the medical leave. And, and I think <clears throat> in the context that we live, the people that we see, the people that we're around, we just need to say, Lord, if I can be of help in any way pointing someone to you, help me to see it, and help me to be willing to say something. And whether it's uh, invite them to church or give them a, a book or a video or simply asking, can I pray for you? Um, one of those, those are just amazing. There's all kinds of other things as well. But I love the fact that this all started with a Jewish slave girl who said, this, my master is going to die and he's really hurting and God could help. So she says, hey, go, go Samaria. That's where he is. <clears throat> So Naaman takes off, they're headed back, and here comes Gehazi, verse 20, the servant of Elisha. The man of God said to himself, my master should have, should not have let this man, Aramean, get away without accepting any of his gifts. As surely as the Lord lives, I will chase after him and get something from him. So here Gehazi is saying, hey, you know, he should have 
paid for some of this. And the reality is Elisha did the right thing. Elisha was wanting him to know it's about God and his grace. It's not that you have money. And I think that lesson was totally lost on, on Gehazi. Um, he wasn't interested in the fact that this amazing thing just happened. He saw 750 pounds of gold going back home and 150 pounds of silver going back home and a whole bunch of other stuff. And so he goes chasing after him. Verse 21, Naaman saw him coming and he climbed down from his chariot and went to meet him. And he says, everything all right? And, and um, you know, look at the change in attitude in Naaman. You know, he was all, you know, wouldn't even get out of the chariot when he first went to see Elisha. And now he sees Elisha's servant coming and he gets down and goes looking for him and, and seeks to talk to him. And Gehazi comes up with this story about two prophets coming from one of the other places and they discovered that they really did have some needs. And, and, uh, in verse uh, 22, um, they, they came from Ephraim, had just arrived. He would like 75 pounds of silver and two sets of clothing to give them. And Naaman says, by all means, take twice as much silver. So as far as I understand it, he's walking away with 150 pounds of silver. And uh, Naaman insisted on giving him uh, the thing. So, you know, you could say Gehazi was shrewd, you know, pulling this off. But the reality is Gehazi was dishonest. He dishonored God with his actions. Uh, he was He was greedy. He wanted this above everything else. And it's interesting. He gets down to 24. He comes back finally and puts the stuff in his house. And um, <clears throat> he goes to see Elisha. And Elisha says, where have you been, Gehazi? Oh, I, I haven't gone anywhere. I'm just, you know, just hanging out. Verse 26. But Elisha asked him, don't you realize that I was there in spirit when Naaman stepped down from his chariot to meet you? And then look at the question and how he puts this. Is this the time to receive money and clothing, olive groves, vineyards, sheep and cattle, and male and female servants? Is, is it time for that? So stop and think of what's being said here. That isn't what he got, but he got a whole bunch of silver. Enough silver, apparently, to be able to get all of those things. That's how much he got. And Elijah says, this, is, this what you're, is this what it's all about for you? And then verse 27, Because you have done this, you and your descendants will suffer from Naaman's leprosy forever. And when Gehazi left the room, he was covered with leprosy. His skin was white as snow. And so you see the fact that here's a man who... He must have had difficulties all along. If you remember when Elisha became Elijah's servant, he was a very wealthy man, left it all behind. We don't even hear about Elisha again until Elijah is ready to go into heaven. That's how behind the scenes Elisha was in his service to Elijah. Now, as you've been reading along, you hear about Gehazi in a number of different places. I mean, he's there like Elisha was for Elijah, but apparently in a different way. And you see his heart come out as he goes running after the silver and the things that are there. He was judged. God judged him. He became a leper. And he died a whole lot sooner than he would have. Um, it says also that his family would suffer from this. And there's a question as to whether or not just someone in the family would have leprosy, actual leprosy, or whether 
generation to generation, they would suffer from the fact that everybody knew the story of Gehazi and how that hurt them as a family even. Uh, the ongoing shame of what he had done could also be what he's referring to. But I, again, Gehazi has been with Elisha and he knows the things Elisha has done. How does it in the world did he think he was going to get away with this? How's he going to pull this off? Well, he didn't. What do we take away from this? For me, the, the, the thing that grabbed my attention the most was the statement of Elisha to the king of Israel. Verse 8, why have you torn your robes? Why have you ripped your clothes? Why are you in despair? Why are you in deepest mourning? Why have you given up? Why have you given given up all hope? Why is there this depth of despair and sorrow in you? There's a definite sense of hopelessness and despair that the king of Israel was feeling. And I love what Elisha says after that phrase, Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. Send him to me. Me and God, we've got this. Now, if you remember, Elijah at one point was sent by God to confront those who had gone to to bail to try to get something. And remember the whole statement was, is it because there's no prophet in Israel that you went to Baal? Well, on one level, that's what Elisha is saying here. Um, King, is it that you don't have a clue that I'm here? I mean, I've even lived in Samaria with, with you. You know who I am. You know what I've done. Why didn't you just come and ask for help? And if there's a true prophet of God, God is at work. If God is at work, then there's hope. That's why I love Lamentations 3.21. In New Living, I love the way they put it. Yet I still dare to hope when I remember this. Now remember, this is being written in a time frame where the city of Jerusalem has now been destroyed. People have been taken captive to, to Babylon. Some people think that Jeremiah may have been sitting where he could see the smoke rising from the ruins of Jerusalem as he wrote Lamentations. So how does this work out? Yet I still dare to hope. Why? Well, when I remember this, the faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. I still dare to hope. Why? Because of God's mercy and God's Love and God's work in, in our hearts and lives. Jerusalem destroyed, temples destroyed, people are being marched off to, to, to exile, and he says, I still dare to hope. Why? The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Martin Luther had been part of the leadership of the Reformation and all that was going on in Europe at the time, and and this is a guy who was preaching many times, two, three times a day to, to good-sized crowds and uh, translating the Bible into German and, and all kinds of things that he was doing and <clears throat> literally burning the candle on all sides. I mean, he, this man was tireless, if you read any of the stuff that went on in his life. But at one point, it seems like it all came just crashing in on him and he was 
depressed and down and despondent and and he was withdrawn in every way and he was married and had children at this point and and in the midst of all that was going on with all the pressures from everything that was happening he was just didn't want to have anything to do with anybody so at one point his wife decided that she was going to start wearing the black clothing that you would wear if someone had died clothes of mourning and apparently she wore it for more than just a day she may have worn it for a couple of days before he finally said who died and she said God and he looked at her and he said well that's the way you're acting you're acting like God is dead and all of a sudden it was like oh okay he's not dead he's not dead and it changed the whole situation around and uh, he was able to get back to what God had called him <clears throat> called him to do what are we going through what are you going through what are your struggles with right now what do you do when you're feeling hopeless and helpless well we can still dare to hope God's faithful love never ends his mercies never cease and then that <clears throat> that verse of the song is such a great one Then rang the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. In the end, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So the next time that you're feeling like there's just no hope, like, you have no idea how you're going to keep going and we all have those times we all do it's just good to remember that we don't have to stay in those times but when we have those times that's why Lamentations 321 has become a favorite verse of mine yet I still dare to hope when I remember this the faithful love of the Lord never ends his mercies never cease so in our deepest and darkest hours when we feel Helpless and hopeless, God is at work. God is not dead. He never sleeps. So we can, and we can go to him at any time, anywhere. His faithful love never fails. His mercies are fresh and new every morning. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the vivid pictures that you give us of men and women who lived and how they responded to what was going on in their lives and how you were at work in their lives. And so, Lord God, we are so thankful for your word and for the privilege of being able to read it and understand it. And Lord, now help us. Help us to apply it. In your name we pray. Amen.